Well, before we dive into uh, before we dive into the text here in Hebrews chapter eleven, I want to invite our offering team to come forward. And as they do, I kind of want to tip you off a little bit or give you a little insider information about something that's starting next week. Um, as some of you may have seen, if you got our e news, by the way, if you're not currently getting our e news, uh, like the bulletin stuff that comes out during the week, uh, if you fill out one of those connect cards that's in the back of the seat, that'll get you on the list, and then we'll send you you know e news stuff that's happening around here, what God's doing, places to get involved, that sort of thing. But one of the big things that's happening is. Uh, uh, after this Sunday, we're going to press pause on our Hebrew series for about a month, and then we'll jump back into it after Easter. But our Easter series is, uh, is called A Place at the Table. And we were looking at the idea during the next four weeks. We'll be looking at the idea that all throughout the Bible, God meets his people in unique ways at a meal, at the table. That we see that from the very beginning. He's, uh, he's meeting with Adam and Eve in, a, in, a, in an orchard, essentially. He provides this meal for them of food. Uh, at the end of the scriptures, we see this great feast of the lamb, the banquet table that all will celebrate, who put their faith in Christ. And all the way in between, there are these places where the table is representative of celebration, or it's representative of remembrance, or it's representative of provision, or even of celebration. And so uh, we're going to be talking about what the table means and what, what that idea of community means for us, but more than just studying it on Sunday in the next four weeks, uh, we actually w- wanted to do something very practically in the month of March. And so here's what we're doing, and I want to invite you all sort of into this, give you a sense of what it is so you can sort of be making plans now. We've actually built a table. Uh, we, we built a t- I say we, I didn't have anything to do with it. There are some people who know what they're doing who built a table, and uh, it's a big, it's like a 12 or a 14 foot table, and uh, all throughout the month of March, we're going we're gonna to take that table and we're going to put it in the fireside room, which is right over here, and we're going to open it up for people, uh, people in our church to, to sign up to be hosts, right? So you can sign up to be a host for a dinner slot. We're doing dinner slots at five and seven o'clock every night of the week throughout the month of March. Um, you can sign up for a dinner slot and then invite whoever you want. You might invite your family, you might invite friends, you might invite folks from the church or people from the neighborhood. Invite them to come in, grab some food from Chipotle or Brea's Best or whatever, bring it around the table, have a cool meal together, and then at the conclusion of the meal, we're encouraging everybody who comes to the table to actually carve in the table a representation, maybe a couple of words, of who you are, who God brought to the table when he brought you to the table. So that at the end of the month of March, we've got this table that will essentially be carved all over with little descriptors. There might be little pictures or, or a couple of words that describe who you are. It could be things like, you know, praying grandmother or faithful friend or adopted son or, you know, it, it can kind of be whatever. We're, we're going to have um, the staff and the elders are sort of going to be using the table this week. So by the time uh, you all step up to it, there will already be some carving in the table. But by the time we get to the end of the month, we'll have this table that is a pretty interesting representation of all that God has brought to this unique community. So we want to encourage you to sign up to be a part of one of those dinners. If you want to host a dinner, if you've got, you know, 12 or 14 friends you want to bring in, that's great. If you're maybe new around here and you're not sure that you want to be a host, we also have open tables. So you can sign up to be part of an open table and we will we'll stack you with some other folks that you can share a meal with and then have some time to carve in the table. That table will actually be here in the service next week so you'll be able to visually see it. But sign-ups for the table are starting today. So if you already go, yeah, I'm in, I wanna gather my friends around the table and have this time of community, um, you can sign up for that out in the plaza today or you can do that online as well. So just kind of be thinking about it. Um, I, I'm really excited to see what happens as sort of this uh, this way we sort of have the opportunity to respond together as a community and, and identify who it is that God's brought to the table around here. So that's that. We'll talk more about it next week, but I wanted to put it on your radar. With that said, will you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11? 
If you've been in the midst of this study with us throughout Hebrews chapter 11, you've seen that the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is building this case for us to couple what we know of God with action. And he gives us some real tangible examples throughout the beginning of the book of those who got really close, who saw the things of God and tasted the things of God, who saw him work in powerful ways and yet fell away. Those who did not ever couple what they knew of God with action and obedience, and as a result, they did not have the opportunity to enter into all the things that God had promised them. The writer then goes on to warn us that we don't want to follow that same example, and in fact, instead of being those, he says at the end of chapter 10, instead of being those who shrink back and perish, we want to be of those who have faith and preserve our souls. And then as we come into 11, where we've been studying the last few weeks, he gives sort of this great list of faithful people and what faith looks like. He talks about Enoch and Abel and Noah. He talks about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Expanding our view of what faith is and what it means for you and I to live in faith. The writer continues to do that at the end of chapter 11, preparing us for a call in chapter 12, which we'll look at after Easter. But here at the end of chapter 11, what we see is the author trying to fill in the gaps of what we might perceive faith to be. He's trying to expand our perception of what faith is. I don't know if you've had situations or circumstances where you thought you understood a thing and then the more you understood it, you understood that it, it was actually a lot more multidimensional or broad than maybe you'd originally understood. My, uh, my wife, a couple of months ago, she says, uh, you know, this house that we moved into in Fullerton has great light. We got good windows in the right place, great light. She goes, this would be a great house for, for a house plant, you know? It would be a great house for house plants. And we didn't have any, I don't think we had any house plants in Long Beach, but my wife said, this would be a good house for uh, house plants. And I said, yeah, that's great. Let's, let's get some house plants, you know? So she went and she got a couple. What I, what I didn't know is that house planting is kind of an addictive thing, or maybe that's just her personality. But over the last two months, uh, she, she continues to fill our house with house, like, like the, now it's like when I come down to breakfast, it's like walking through one of those Vietnam movies. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, wa- you were like walking through a jungle to get to the, your cereal bowl. There's like gunfire in the distance and you hear those weird chirping monkeys and, uh, like there all kinds of things have plants in them at our house. There's like coffee cups with plants and there's traditional bowls that have plants. There's plants hanging from things. And she's talking about trying to get plants to grow up the walls. You know, I, uh, my mind, my perception of what it means to be a house that's good for houseplants has been expanded beyond sort of what I ever imagined, right? She has, over time, progressively expanded my view of what that can and does mean, practically, in our house. Um, The writer here is saying, I don't want you just to see faith one way. Because if you look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what you see are good examples of people who God spoke to, God called, and they did what they were told, and as a result, they were looking forward to the promises of God, which they didn't receive in their lifetime, but but they were absolutely faithful and obedient to follow God. Now, in this last section, he moves into talking about different facets and different ways that faith can look, and he begins here in 23 by talking about Moses, also an incredible hero of the faith, But look at the way he talks about Moses' faith. Because it isn't just Moses hearing God and doing what God tells him to do. It's a little bit broader than that. He starts actually by talking about Moses' parents. He says, by faith, verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Well, this is expanding our view of faith, and and we studied this when we were in Exodus last summer. Um, In Exodus chapter 2, we see that, that what he's describing here is the faith of people that had an impact on someone else. 
It's not just Abraham's faith, it's impacting Abraham's decisions and where Abraham's gonna go, but now it's the faith of these godly parents who protect the life of their child even though he, he is meant to be killed by the Pharaoh. Pharaoh's basically issued an edict that says all the children his age should be killed. They protect the child because of their faith. So what the writer's telling us is that sometimes faith isn't just an individual thing. Sometimes faith is brought to bear in the lives of those who cannot defend themselves. Sometimes faith is brought to bear in caring for those who are outside of us. And he goes on to sort of expand that, even talking about Moses. Look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. There again, we hear the story of someone who's looking beyond where his feet are planted to the greater promises of God in eternity. And it says that Moses chose the reproach of Christ. It's interesting. It's an interesting phrase. Because it makes me wonder, what did Moses truly understand about the Savior that would come? What did Moses understand about the ways in which he was painting a picture by entering into the plight of the Israeli people, right? All of the Israelites were enslaved. They were all oppressed. And Moses, because of his faith, makes the choice not to identify with, with the kingdom of Pharaoh, not to identify with the royalty, not to identify with his adopted mother, but instead to identify with the slaves, those who could not defend themselves. And because of his faith, he rejects the treasures of Egypt and he embraces what's called here the reproach of Christ because he's looking ahead to a greater reward. Well, the reproach of Christ, the picture here, is the idea that Jesus also enters into the plight of those who cannot save themselves. That in the incarnation, he comes to earth and he takes on flesh. He takes our sin upon himself and he is oppressed, and he is beaten, and he is crucified because of his great desire to set us free from sin and death. The reproach of Christ, according to the writer of Hebrews, is something that Moses chose. He was able to look ahead and say, by entering into the pain and the suffering of these people who can't defend themselves, I'm wrapping my arms around something that is a type of a greater thing yet to come. He says, because of Moses' faith, He entered into the pain of other people. Not only that, look at verse 27. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. He didn't set his sights on the anger of the Pharaoh, but instead he set his sights on the favor of God. And that drove his decisions. It's broader. It's broader. He says, by faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. He's faithful even to be obedient to God rather than obedient to the king. We're seeing here as the writer to the Hebrews is expanding our view and our perception of what faith is, that sometimes faith is revolutionary, that sometimes it's got a little bit of rebellion woven through it, that in the defense of those who can't defend themselves and in the rejection of what the culture might say has value and in looking at God instead of looking at the face of the king, there is this revolutionary aspect of faith that he's caring about something more important than maybe what the common pervasive culture would tell him is valuable. He goes on beyond that to explain, uh, he gives us two more examples here in 29 and 30, 31 also. In 29 and 30 he says, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians when they attempted to do the same were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Two pretty famous examples, both the, the fact that the Israelites walked through the Red Sea on dry land because of their faith, and also the fact that 
the, the walls of Jericho fell after the people of God did what militaristically made no sense. They walked around the city, right, for seven days, and they didn't make any noise, and then on the last day they blew their trumpets. It, it's the worst military strategy ever. But what the writer is saying is that faith is not necessarily always an intensely personal thing either. That sometimes faith is a communal thing. It's something that a body of people inhabit together. He could easily have said, by faith, Moses led the people through the Red Sea. Or by faith, Joshua led the people around Jericho. But that isn't the way he describes it. He says, by faith, the people saw the walls fall down. By faith, the people walked on dry ground. What's that telling us? As it expands our view of faith, it says, yes, we want to be personally accountable for the kind of faith we bring to bear in the life before us. But there's also an accountability that we have as a community to be faithful as a church to be faithful, as a family to be faithful, as a business to be faithful, right? Whatever different spheres you're in, there is the opportunity and the privilege of considering what faithfulness looks like in larger groups. It can be a communal thing. He's expanding our view. And then he really, he really the writer here, tries to blow our minds because in, in, uh, in 31, look at what he says here. 1131, he says, by faith... Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. You can read about this story in Joshua, but when the spies go into Jericho to scout it out, they meet this woman who is a Canaanite living in Jericho and a prostitute, right? So she's not from Israel. She's not somebody who went through the Exodus. She's a a prostitute living in Jericho, and she looks at the, the, the spies that have come in. And she says, I know, you can read about this in Joshua uh, chapters two and six. She says, I know that you have, have go- the God of the universe has already delivered over to you the city in which I live. And all the people in the city in which I live are quaking in fear because we know who your God is. And so I will protect you and I will keep your secret and I will provide a place of refuge for you. But will you go to your God on my behalf and spare my life? Because I believe that your God will do what he says he's gonna do. The writer of the Hebrews is expanding our view of what faith is. Now Abraham, I mean, this is a hero of the faith. That's an incredible man. Moses, a hero of the faith. And now he gets here to 31 and he goes, also Rahab the prostitute, a hero of the faith, right? And you kind of go, well, what? But what's he saying? He's saying faith isn't reserved for those who come from the right family or who have the right history. It's not reserved for those who've lived lives of incredible moral character prior to that point. Faith is available and and possible for each and every one of us. I find great hope in this. I find great hope in the fact that in each and every case, all of these people that, that, whose names are listed in this, in this gallery of faith, all of them have brokenness that's demonstrated in their life. These are people who are liars and cheaters. They're fakers. They're adulterers. They're murderers, right? Every one of these people that we would look at as a hero, they have moments of cowardice, moments of testing God, mo- moments of being careless, moments of being rash. And I find great hope in that because I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but all of us are broken too. You can look left and right, back and forward, everybody in the room. One of the things that unites us is that we are united in our need for a savior because we're all broken. So as the writer to the Hebrews is expanding our view of faith, he goes, don't just think of it as being the spiritual superheroes who are faithful. Don't just think of it as the people who have impeccable resumes or who come from the right family or who are born into the right place. No, faith manifests in the brokenness of people's lives as well. 
Rahab didn't come from Israel, and yet she recognized who God was, and she was faithful, and her life was preserved when the rest of the city fell. He's broadening our view. He goes on from there. He says this in verse 32. What more shall I say? For time would fail to tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. There's a, a great list, but it's, a just, it's just basically scratching the surface. He's making the point in listing these names that there are all kinds of people that immediately come to mind. When we think about the faithful, there are all kinds of different people we might include. He says, I don't have time to list them all, but just think about these names. If you want to do uh, some homework down the road, go back and read the stories of each of these characters. They're, it, they're incredible stories of faith. He says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. He's talking about a timeline that goes all the way from Abraham, and actually you go back all the way up to Abel, and goes all the way through, really, the, the, the last of the prophets. He says, I don't have time to go through all of this, but these people, verse 33, these people who through faith conquered kingdoms and enforced justice Obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. I mean, it's a pretty incredible list. There are some pretty incredible demonstrations of rescue and victory we see in the Bible. And it's interesting, he gives us a couple of different categories of example even. Like a couple of the things he lists are things that from outward appearance wouldn't necessarily seem miraculous. You know what I'm talking about? Like they don't seem supernatural. When he talks about bringing justice or about conquering kingdoms, those are things that, you know, people like King David, they did as a matter of course, right? And we don't necessarily always think about those things as being the hand of God in response to faith, Right? We do think about you know, when fire falls from the, mount, from the sky and it consumes the altar of Baal with Elijah there. We think, oh, that is God responding to faith. But in the, in the sort of regular things, we don't necessarily always see God's hand at work. The writer's trying to expand our view of faith and he's saying sometimes it's God working in subtle ways. That even the conquering of kingdoms or the obtaining of promises or the bringing of justice is God's response to faithfulness. Sometimes it happens in little ways, but he also gives us some pretty powerful supernatural examples in that list too. Because he says what? They shut the mouths of lions. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Daniel, right? Daniel chapter six. When Daniel, because of his faithfulness, is thrown into the lion's den, and yet the lions, even though they're hungry, are unable to eat him because God shuts the mouths of the lions. He says they, they were able to escape through the fire. Back to this list, I don't wanna misquote it here. He says, they shut the mouths of lions, they quench the power of fire. He's talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter three, that they wouldn't bow to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, and so they were thrown into the fire, and yet not a hair on their heads was burned. God saved them in a supernatural way. It wasn't subtle, it wasn't discreet, it wasn't the kind of thing that may have been God or may not have been God. It was absolutely the deliverance of God in response to their faith. It says they escaped from the sword. They escape from the edge of the sword. He's talking, I mean, he could be there talking about Elijah and Elisha, who during their time as prophets were both under threat of being murdered almost the entire time they were serving God. There are lots of examples of both the subtle movement of God, the supernatural movement of God, and then he also gives a couple of examples of the transformational movement of God in response to faith. He says in this list, they were quenched, they quenched the power of fire, verse 34, they escaped the edge of the sword, they were made strong out of weakness, Made strong, right? 
That's God's transformational work. You think about Gideon, right, who was a coward and not really excited about following God at all, and he ended up coming up with an army of 30,000 people, and God says, that's too many for me to provide the victory. Let's whittle it down. Let's whittle it down. Let's, he whittles that army down to 300, and God goes, this seems like the right size for me to do something awesome, right? Gideon was made strong out of weakness. Not only that, he says they were made strong out of weakness. They became, excuse me, they became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight, and women received back their dead by resurrection. I mean, these are incredible stories of victory, incredible reminders of God's victorious power in response to the faith of his people. We think about the widow of Zarephath. That's, that's a one example of someone who was given back their dead, right? The widow of Zarephath who was in communication with Elijah. Elijah had been staying with her. Her son dies. Elijah comes and he prays for this child and the child is raised to life because of the faith of Elijah and the faith of this woman, right? There's all kinds of examples of God's power, his rescue. But there's something else I want you to notice. And here, again, the writer is trying to expand our view of faith. I want you to notice in verse 35 that there is a non-transition. I know that's weird, but I want you to, to look at what's missing in 35. You see, because there's a seamless list. He says people brought justice and they obtained promises and they shut the mouths of lions and they also escaped through the fire and their dead were raised to life and then without any kind of, there's no period, there's nothing, it's not like the end of one thought and the beginning of another thought. Look at the way this, this flow of thought. I want you to notice that there is no transition. See the non-transition in 35. This is the way it reads. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. I love the fact that he just flows this straight in. He goes, there are incredible stories of victory, incredible stories in response to the faith of people where they are rescued. But without skipping a beat, he says there are also incredible stories of people who because of their faith were absolutely and totally wrecked. Wrecked. And you might go, well, like if you're reading the list, you might go, saved from the fire and they shut the mouths of the lions and they got their dead back and they were, they were tortured. And they, well, it's, it's hard to get excited. You kind of get to the end and you go like, they, they, they were mistreated? Like, this is a response of faith? Huh? You kind of put the question mark at the end of it? I think it can be disorienting for a lot of people because our, our view of faith is sometimes poorly defined and poorly informed. Let me tell you what I mean. I, I think that there is, a, um, there is a tendency sometimes in the church and among Christians to pitch following Jesus like this, to go, hey, You've tried a lot of things and you've been left unsatisfied. You've tried drugs and alcohol. You've tried, you know, trying to own a bunch of stuff. You've tried all these things. Now try Jesus. He's the only thing that will make you feel happy and satisfied. He's the only place where you're going to find real joy. And if you'll follow Jesus, guess what? It's going to be awesome, right? You're going to feel good. People are going to love you. You're going to have all these great Christian friends. Doves are going to come and land on your shoulder. Rainbows are going to people be feeding you grapes. It's just so nice, you know. Come and follow Jesus if you want to have a happy life. And the problem with the message like that is that initially it draws a lot of people in. People go, oh, I have tried drugs and I have tried, I will try Jesus. 
But they get down the road and they realize that sometimes in following Jesus, the result of a life of faith is not rescue. Sometimes the result of a life of faith is absolute wreckage. And when they get to that point, they go, somebody told me this was going to feel good. And somebody told me this was going to be happy times and joy and doves landing. And it isn't that, and so I'm not following anymore. We can get a lot of people in the door, but they will not stay because they were misinformed about what the nature of faith is. We have to expand our view of what faith is. I got, uh, I got invited to go on a, um, a trip to Catalina with my son, Jack, when he was in seventh grade. And the school was like, we need chaperones for the Catalina trip, so sign up, it's gonna be awesome. We're gonna go to Catalina. You get to ride on a boat, and we're gonna stay with this. It's like, really gonna be fun. We're gonna do all these science experiments. You get to do some snorkeling, get to do some hiking. We're gonna see all kinds of animals. It's gonna be awesome, you know, and I'm like, all right, like that sounds, that sounds pretty cool. It sounds pretty fun. You know, I get to spend some time with my son. So yeah, you know, I signed up to be a chaperone. So I go, I go to Catalina and as soon as we get there, we get off the boat and they're, uh, they're like, okay, unload your bags and whatever. And then the leader of the camp, he goes, hey, parents, just so you know, if you're here as a chaperone, before you can do any of the activities, you have to pass a swim test. And, uh, and I was like, okay, no problem. Like I could swim. I'm relatively buoyant. So this should be okay. And, uh, <laughs> So they, uh, they go, well, the first thing is, the first part of the swim test, you got to swim out in the ocean around this buoy and then come back. And so I, I, I got my trunks on, I swim out around the buoy, I come back, no big deal. And they said, the second part of the swim test is you got to row out in a kayak to the buoy, and then you got to roll out of the kayak, and then you got to get back in on the water, right? And so I'm like, that doesn't, I mean, that doesn't seem that big of a deal. So I row out to the buoy on the ocean waves, you know, whatever. I row out there, I literally like flop out, it's sort of like... <laughs> watching a seal fall down. Um, so I like flop out of the kayak and then I'm, um, I, I, I position myself, I kind of stabilize myself on the kayak. I don't know if you've tried this before, but you just, it's all upper body strength. You know, you pull yourself up and then you got to kind of swing your legs around. And I, I kid you not, first try, like I pull myself up, I swing my legs around and I get in the thing, but I, there's a little too much momentum and I carry myself past and I dump myself out again, right? So then I turn the kayak over and I'm trying to pull myself up and, but the longer I'm out in the water, I've already done the swim test, I've already done the, the rowing thing, I, my, my upper body is just like cooked, I'm like maxed out. So I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get up on the thing and I literally, I just cannot get the strength, right? And my, I can tell the veins are standing out of my neck and my face is turning red and I'm struggling to get in this kayak and then you guys, the worst thing happens. Like the leader of the camp, he gets this megaphone, he's like, Mr. McWallace, you can do it. <laughs> Don't give up! And I'm like, oh, when, I, I'm gonna, when I get back to, oh, somebody's gonna die, you know? And I'm just trying to get up on the thing. And then it gets even worse. All the like middle schoolers from the Christian school, they're all on the beach. All the other parents, like, go, go, go! And I'm like, no! Ah. And then this is the final straw. The final straw, there's this one little girl, and she goes, Mr. McWaters! Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ. And I'm like, that verse is a lie. <laughs> and she's like, you know. But I, and I, I felt bad. I felt bad about saying that about the Bible, but literally I, at, that, <laughs> at that point, I could not do all things through Christ. You know, I couldn't do, I couldn't, I was, and I, I was spent. And so they had to send another dude on a kayak out. <laughs> and pull me in, right? One of the most humiliating things in my whole life. And when I get back to my cabin, I'm like, I don't, why did I come on this trip, you know? 
If they would have said, hey, come as a chaperone and you're gonna be able to go out and be humiliated in front of everyone, you're gonna deny the authority of the Bible in front of a bunch of seventh graders and you're gonna hate yourself and others, uh, I wouldn't have gone, right? If somebody told me that's what that was gonna be, I would not have gone. But as I'm sitting in my cabin, it dawns on me that I, I didn't come out on that trip to impress the other parents. I didn't come out on that trip to have fun. I didn't come out on that trip to be humiliated. I came out on that trip to be with my boy. And it didn't matter whether I was humiliated or whether I was having a blast. The reality was I was still with my kid and that's why I came. If you're following Jesus or if you're trying to initiate faith in your life, if you're trying to follow the example of these heroes in the, in the book of Hebrews and you're following God because you have this misinformed idea that it's going to be happy and joyful and, and, and it's just going to be a blast all the time, you will stop following him. Because there are moments, as Jesus himself said, that are very difficult. It says here, listen to what it says in the text. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Listen, if you're following Jesus because of how good it's going to make you feel, you will eventually quit following Jesus. Because sometimes the result of a life of faith is temporal victory, but sometimes the, life of a, uh, the result of a life of faith is temporal wreckage. The guarantee of faith is not that you'll always feel good, not that you'll always have money in the bank, not that you'll always feel healthy, not that people will always respect you. In fact, as we look at this portrait gallery of faith, there are all kinds of people who were poor and broken and sick and hated, but they were faithful. Why? Because their goal wasn't to be liked and their goal wasn't to be rich, rich and their goal wasn't to be well-clothed and their goal wasn't to be healthy. Their goal was to glorify God. It says at the end of this chapter in verses 39 and 40, it says, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Here's the guarantee. The guarantee of faith is this. If you live a life of faithfulness, if you live a life that couples what you know of God with action and obedience, here are the guarantees. The first guarantee is that you will receive the commendation of God. That he will be pleased with you. That he, that he will, that he, as we looked at last week, that he will not consider calling himself your God a shame. The commendation of God is something they all, they didn't all receive the promise, not while they were alive. They didn't all receive that, but they did receive the commendation of God. You know, the other, the other guarantee is the fulfillment of the eternal promise of God. You see, all the temporal suffering or the temporal victory, it pales in comparison to what God has promised, which is resurrection life. And there is no place else on the planet or in the universe where resurrection life can be found. Resurrection life is only found in the name of Christ, and that's it, in his shed blood on our behalf. So yeah, might it be difficult? Sometimes will it be wreckage and sometimes will it be rescue? Absolutely, but what you have as a guarantee is resurrection life and the presence of God in eternity. Guarantee of the commendation of God and his favor. Guarantee of resurrection that only he can extend. Resurrection of solidarity with the company of faith, right? That in both the victory and the wreckage, in the suffering and, and the absolute like, like rescue, 
You find solidarity with those who are focused on Jesus, focused on his glory. There is a sense in which he says they didn't receive the promise because God had a different plan. His plan was for all of us to be made perfect together in Christ. That he doesn't perfect all of these people over time. That there was a point in time when Jesus died and rose again, a point in time in which perfection or resurrection life was made available to everyone, and he wanted us to have that in solidarity with each other. So what's the guarantee of a faithful life? The commendation of God, resurrection, ultimate reward, right? And also solidarity with the people of God. And then lastly, the last thing I see in this text that's a guarantee is is that if you live a life of faith, you then, and only then, find yourself in alignment with God's good purpose. You then and only then find yourself in alignment with God's good purpose. We don't follow God for how it feels. We don't follow God for what we get out of it. We follow him because he is God and there is no other. And it may be hard and it, you may be poor and you may be destitute. You might be wearing goat skins. Or I don't, that would be so weird, but maybe, right? But God will be glorified in you. You'll join the company of faith. God will commend your work resurrection life is yours as a result of his grace and your life becomes aligned with his good purpose. You see, the the reality for believers is that faith believes that God's plan is truly good and perfect and that whether that plan includes rescue or wreck for me personally, it is still better than life apart from him. Whether his plan includes rescue or wreck for me, it is still better than life apart from him. I love God more than my plans. I love God more than my bank account. I love God more than power. I love God more than than the things I'd like to do in the future. Those things all are secondary to who God is. Faith does not guarantee victory or defeat. It guarantees God's commendation, his promise of ultimate reward, association with the company of faith, and alignment with his perfect purpose. But there's one last thing I want you to see and then we'll be done. In the midst of that list of suffering, right there at the end, did you notice what he referred to them as? These faithful people? It says in verse 38, well, I'll back up to 37. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. It's just like a little aside, a little parenthetical. He goes, these people, the world was not worthy of them. These people of faith who set their sights on the promises of God more than they set their sights on their own personal satisfaction or their own comfort or their own wealth. These people who set their sights on the glory of God, the world was not worthy of them. What does that mean? Think about it for a second. I mean, it it sounds nice. It'd be nice for me, you know, somebody to go, "Oh, oh, the world is not worthy of you. But what does it mean? What it means is that in a very special and beautiful way, both the, both the rescue and the wreckage of God's people is a gift to an unbelieving world. That God has put us here in the midst of a world that doesn't know God. And in the midst of our victories and our defeats, we become a beacon of faith to those who don't have it. The world doesn't deserve that. The world isn't worthy of that beacon. And the world doesn't always appreciate the beacon, right? There are plenty of examples of people who've been living lives of faith and they've been scorned by the world. That is the reproach of Christ that Moses wrapped his arms around. But God puts his faithful people in the midst of a broken and falling world as a gift to them of what real life can be. 
and the world doesn't deserve it, but when did God ever give the world what they deserved? They aren't worthy of a life of faith that you might demonstrate in their midst, but you know who is worthy of it? God, and so much more. He's worthy of your life, your sacrifice, your suffering, your victory, your rescue, your shutting the, lives, the, the mouths of lions and your being sawn into. He's worthy of that and everything else you have to give, that you would pour yourself, that I would pour myself out upon the altar of his glory. The world's not worthy of it, but he is. He certainly is. Let me ask you this. How does your life of faith shine as a beacon in the darkness? Because our world desperately needs it. And more so in the days ahead. More than ever our world, this world. I hear people all the time are talking about, you know, the, how it's so dark in Africa. Oh, it's the, Africa's a dark place. Or, you know, South America, a dark place. Can I tell you what? We live in a dark place, right? Those places might be dark. <laughs> we, I, we might have them beat. Sorry. We need a beacon God wants to use us as beacons in the darkness. And the way in which he does that is by offering our lives of faith to the world, even though they don't deserve it, as a beacon of who he is. How does your light shine in the darkness? How does your life of faith hold up to those in this gallery? Because to me, I look at that and I think, I want to be a man of whom the world is not worthy. I want to be someone God can use. And it requires a life focused on God's glory and not on myself. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would supernaturally help us to internalize this. That wouldn't be just a teaching. It wouldn't just be a time to know what it says in Hebrews 11. Forget that. God, would you help us, convict us, inspire us, compel us. God, would we be so constrained by your love that we would no longer live for ourselves but for he who died and was raised? that we would carry in us the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And that regardless of suffering or victory, rescue or wreckage, we would be unwavering in our commitment to you and your glory. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.